Good morning. Uh, my name is Philip. I'm the youth pastor here at Fort Worth Prez. If I haven't met you, I would love the chance to meet you. Uh, maybe afterward in our time to to share and fellowship, used as a verb, which I know is unpopular for some of you, to fellowship together in the fellowship hall after after worship. So I'd love to meet you. But until then, if you, uh, if you brought your Bible, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, as we have been the last couple of weeks. And uh, this week is... As the anticipation builds toward um, toward Christmas, as we're in a season of Advent at this point, we are waiting. And this week we come to maybe the greatest anticipation, and also you won't have the fullness of the story because we don't get there until next until next week. So um, let's see how the gospel is to be found here in Angel Gabriel's proclamation of Jesus' birth. So if you would read along with me as I read aloud. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 45. Hear now God's word. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Let's pray together and ask God now to teach us his word. Please pray with me. Our Father, we, we give you thanks for these, your, your Gospels, this, your Gospel, coming to us from Luke. We pray that you would instruct our hearts this morning, that we would be edified in our minds, in our hearts, in our whole person, to know who Jesus is, to love him, to believe in him. And Father, I pray that you would bless us in this endeavor. Um, we pray that you would help us here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, Home Alone, which is one of my personal favorite Christmas films. If you haven't seen it, I'll give you the two-sentence synopsis. It's the story of a young boy, the youngest child of five kids, 
who is used to being ridiculed, made fun of, put down by his siblings and his parents because he is the youngest and the most annoying. I know any of you who are youngest siblings, you know what I'm talking about, right? You can't get a fair shake no matter what. Well, a few days before Christmas, eight-year-old Kevin McAllister has reached the end of his rope. So Kevin makes a wish, this is his simple wish, that his family would disappear, that they would just disappear And the next morning, the family leaves town to travel for the holiday, forgetting Kevin and leaving him behind. And as the story plays out, his wish is granted. But as the movie continues and Kevin enjoys his newfound freedom and escape from all the taunting and the criticism and the jokes, he realizes on Christmas Day that though his wish was granted and his family disappeared, he is more lonely than ever. His life, once full of relationship, and his older brother brother Buzz, and his terrible Uncle Frank, is now empty. And though I've seen Home Alone maybe a dozen times, when Kevin realizes that he gets his wish, and that he's alone and empty instead of free, it eats at me a little bit every time I see it. I think that's because Home Alone played on this big theme that's so, so pronounced for us in Advent. And it's the feeling of being alone being by yourself, and really being empty. So my question for you is, why is emptiness a house guest every Christmas? Or to put it a little more carnally maybe, why is the month where we eat and drink and open gifts and consume more of everything all in one month, why is it the month where we feel the most emptiness? And often it's a dreadful, a dull, a growing emptiness over Advent. Why is that? Well, Three things I want us to see in Luke this morning that I hope will illuminate that a little bit for you and fill out this picture of emptiness and fullness in Luke's gospel. So three things I want you to get. The first, Mary is empty. The second, Mary is filled. And the third, Mary is blessed. Mary is empty, Mary is filled, and Mary is blessed. So first, Mary is empty. Well, right off the bat, right here at the beginning, Mary's betrothal points to an existing emptiness in her life. And you might be thinking... How is that? Isn't she getting married? Isn't this an exciting time in her life? Well, I think your betrothal, impending marriage for her, points to her emptiness. And we'll look at three reasons why, just here briefly at the beginning, okay? She's empty relationally and romantically, in verse 27. She's empty socially, and that's the setting of our text. She's a poor Jewish girl in first century Palestine. And third, she's empty personally, in verse 28. So just briefly here at the beginning, she's relationally empty. Look at verse 27 with me. Luke tells us that Mary is betrothed. She's legally promised and bound to be married to a man named Joseph. This is the picture of a young woman who's on the brink of an exciting time in life. A woman, even in this world of Mary's time, when life expectancy was a third to half of that of American life today, she has still her whole life ahead of her. And she's seeking companionship, a noble cause. Why? Why is she, why does she want to be married? It's not that hard. It's to relieve the very same kind of loneliness that we feel. Not that all should or need to be married, but everyone knows what it feels like to be alone. Mary's relationally empty. It's one of the reasons why she's seeking to be married. It's kind of obvious. Second, Mary's social emptiness is here in the passage. But it's also supported by the world of the the Bible, the world of the text. Historical evidence of the time in which Mary lived. Mary was terribly disadvantaged, even by our modern standards. Fifty years earlier, uh, 
Cicero, maybe the greatest writer and politician and most influential order in Rome, he bases part of a court defense on the incapacity of women. He argues that it's good and right that women need guardians to make business decisions for them, to take any legal action, even to make decisions about family property in their homes. Moreover, verse 27 tells us that Mary, who is Jewish, is betrothed to Joseph, a Jewish Jewish man. That's a particular kind of status. It's not just like engagement for us. In her day, this gave Mary no extra privilege than living in Roman Nazareth, because betrothal was like marriage, and that it was legally binding and would require legal action to break. Remember what she could not do because of what we just said. It was unlike marriage, though, in that during betrothal, a couple was expected to be completely and utterly chaste. It's not that hard to see then why a pregnancy spelled disaster, particularly and maybe only for the woman. When Matthew tells us in his gospel that Joseph decided to divorce Mary quietly. He's saying that Joseph had an exit plan. (laughs) Lose a little social standing, maybe, because he had made a mistake to marry someone who wasn't committed, some might say. But then he's okay. He's out. Mary would have lost her property that she gave when she came into marriage, her dignity, her standing of sexual chastity, her reputation, everything. Mary is socially empty after Gabriel delivers her this news. And she's without hope. That's what Luke is trying to show us. But thirdly, Mary is personally empty. This is the one maybe that is most relatable for us. Mary is personally empty. Where do we see that? Well, look at verse 28. Look at how Gabriel greets Mary. He uses a strange greeting. And we're even told it's one that troubles Mary, greatly troubles Mary. Well, why? Why is she troubled? You ready for it? It's because when Gabriel, the angel sent from God, greets her, the first word out of his mouth is to call her favored one. And Mary breaks down. The passage barely conveys how she reacts. She is shaken up. She's thrown into confusion. She's thrown into inner turmoil. That's what that greatly troubled is saying in such a compact little case. Why? Mary is so troubled at the saying, not with the angel's appearance, per se, though that would have been wild, right? Not with the angel's mere presence, although it's completely unexpected, and she's alone. That could be frightening. But she's troubled at the saying. At the saying. And that's where a war breaks out inside Mary. Remember, she's thrown into turmoil. That's what that means. She's greatly troubled. So much so that the angel then has to tell her, don't be afraid. Like, be chill, Mary. Don't freak out, right? Don't lose it yet. I haven't even gotten to the surprising part. (laughs) The angel has to remind her to calm down. Don't be afraid. When the angel's greeting begins with God's favor and grace, greetings, gracious one, God is with you. When that meets Mary's personal emptiness, it stirs up confusion, and turmoil in her. It's no coincidence that Mary's alone when this happens. Her outer loneliness reflects powerfully her inner emptiness. It's like a barber handing you a mirror after a haircut just so you can expect, inspect the back of your head. I feel as much like a fraud in that moment as any, right? And you're kind of looking at the back of your head. You knew you had a back of your head. Right? You've always known it's there, and you've probably never been that upset or discontent with it. But when you're asked to stare at it with a master of haircutting standing over you, all of a sudden the back of your head looks so shabby and inadequate, right? Or maybe what many of you may be doing this time of year, hosting family in your home. 
There's nothing that makes you notice how dirty your house is, like having some in-laws or out-of-town guests, maybe a mother-in-law, father-in-law, don't want to go too far there, coming to visit. It's like suddenly you live in a trash heap, right? We live in a pile of garbage. Mary's personal emptiness becomes overwhelming when God sends Gabriel to hold up a mirror. Me? God's found favor with me? That's impossible, right? You've got the wrong person. My life is a wreck. It's a wreck. One way this um, comes to us plays out, a Russian novelist, Alexander Shultzeltsin, I'm getting that wrong, I'm sure, but he writes this, the problem with modern society is its sinful presumption that man is born to be happy when he clearly has to die. If anything here, Mary maybe is in touch with reality. Maybe that's why she's so greatly troubled. She understands that she's empty, and that's not altogether a bad thing. Mary's lonely, she's doubting, she's empty. And we know what she felt. Because for us, nothing, nothing in this world can satisfy us. We are never, never, never content with all that we are or all that we are not. You go into a new friendship hoping for a lifelong bestie. Doesn't happen. You have a child thinking you'll share everything with him or with her. Doesn't work out that way. You see a child growing up and maturing into adulthood hoping they'll call you. They'll need you. They'll seek your help and advice in every decision. Maybe even want them to ask you for money, right? It doesn't play out so, so nicely. Maybe you find a new auto mechanic and you think, finally, this is the one, right? We're going to become friends and we'll have an honest, trusting relationship after all. Maybe it's you meet someone, right? And you never tell them this, but you imagine a lifelong relationship, a romance, even a wedding, growing old together. You get a new pair of shoes even and think, These are fantastic. This is the last pair of shoes I will ever need. They're awesome. For a good friend of mine, he's never met a cheeseburger he didn't like, so much so that he left Fort Worth several years ago, bound for the West Coast, with one goal in mind, discover the greatest cheeseburger ever made. It was like a talent search for ground beef between sesame-laden carb deliciousness, right? And the outcome of his journey was just to say there are a lot of good ones out there. That's it. No one burger, as good as they came, no one burger satisfied him. None of them filled his emptiness and hunger for a delicious, the best burger. So for you, what is your emptiness? What is your emptiness? One old, maybe popular way of getting at this is to answer the question, what would you do if you had a million dollars? And that might point out the place where you're feeling inadequate or unfulfilled. Um, Another might be to answer the question, What would you do if you really weren't afraid? Like, not at all. No hindrances in your life. What would you do? But whatever the case, there is no substitute for slow, attentive, and reflective living. To discover our emptiness, especially for those of us who are Christians, we must continually be honest about how intensely we experience the pain of life in frail mortal bodies in a chaotic world, just like Mary. Mary points out here that there is no cure for emptiness other than God. That's why experiences that seem maybe most otherworldly and supernatural have the tendency to shake us to our core, like Mary's visit from an angel, Gabriel, or like death, or childbirth, or love, or maybe for some, a fantastic pair of shoes or an amazing cheeseburger. Um, in, In mere Christianity, 20th century historian and author C.S. Lewis, he puts... Emptiness. He describes it like this. He writes, 
The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to to despise or be thankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a copy, an echo, or a mirage. What's he saying? He's saying that our emptiness and all of its pain, it has one primary purpose. It's to point to the truth and the reality of another world. It's to point to the reality that our emptiness is meant to be filled. So first, Mary is empty. Second, let's see how Mary is filled. Where do we see Mary filled? Well, to put it simply and to the point, Mary has faith. Her response shows that very clearly. In fact, she has to have faith in order to respond to the angel the way that she does. Right? Well, how does she respond? Look with me at verse 38. She says, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What's Mary's response? It's simple belief. Nothing big. Nothing fancy. Right? Simple faith. But simple, remember, isn't shallow. And simple isn't trivial. And simple certainly isn't easy, not for Mary. If Mary's great trouble is her realizing she is not worthy of God's favor, he must be wrong. There's no possibility that God would search for her and find favor in her. That God's instant, unmerited grace to her must be a mistake. Then if that's her problem, then what is God's answer? How does the angel elaborate on what this favor that makes Mary tremble for her now mean? By delivering some shocking news. News that spells out a swift, a public, social, and personal demise. Look back at verse 30. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So why is this news such a bombshell? It's a little hard for us, especially if you've read it before. Why is this news so shocking? Why is it so devastating? The angel Gabriel tells her that she'll bear a son. But a young Jewish woman who is betrothed cannot conceive and bear a child without losing everything. Not without losing her future husband. Remember, her betrothal must be ended by a divorce, which she can't make. She can't conceive and bear a son without losing the acceptance of her parents, who now have lost significant wealth, even for the poor, and public face, and who now very likely may be shunned socially for their daughter's lapse in judgment. Not without falling several rungs on the economic ladder when she was already low to begin with. So what happens at the Annunciation? What is happening here for Mary? At this incredible moment where God is announcing that the Son of of the Most High will be born among men, And what happens in Mary when Gabriel announces that to her? I think it's this. The empty self is filled. 
What does a person who's engaged or betrothed desire? I don't mean a wedding dress or a fun party or even a spouse. I mean, what's under that? What is their deeper desire? What's the reason behind those things? What's brought them up to this point and what's creating so much expectation? The answer is a much deeper longingness for their loneliness to be overcome, for their emptiness to be filled through the love of another, through companionship, through the life lived in the face of another person who vows to always love and accept them. And as we move through the season of Advent, which is really a season of waiting, you know what happens inside you and me? I don't know if you felt that as an adult yet or in any season of Advent in your life. And this is sensitive, and I know I'm touching on something painful for many of you and for me, but so many of you know the feeling and the pain and the hurt that comes out so prominently in Advent because you've lost someone that you love. Something or someone that's so deep and meaningful and intimate to you has been taken away or destroyed, and it comes home and you feel it at Advent, right? You feel it, and you feel the emptiness of yourself. That's what changes for Mary here. That's why she's able to say in verse 38, let it be to me according to the will of God. This is where her transformation happens. And it's not just a metaphor. It's not just a picture. It is physical. The angel of God appears to her in real time before her physical eyes, and the Holy Spirit is upon her. Mary, in a body, the Spirit is upon her. And the Son of God is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in her womb physically. What Mary experiences here shows us that it's not merely a spiritual desire, a longing, an emptiness that is met when you belong and when you know Jesus. It's certainly that, but it's more than that. It is much more than that. It's a physical companionship. It's love. It's home, and you're not alone. It's God with man, Emmanuel. Listen, Mary's transformation, her personal, relational, social emptiness being filled, that is the only way she is able to give this kind of response at all. That's the only way she can look at her own personal demise, social annihilation, the imminent loss of her loved one, Joseph. That's the only way she can look at all of that and say, yes, God, make that me. Make this my future. Bring it on. Even though I lose everything, even though it will cost me friends and relationships with family members and so many things that I now enjoy, all of that's now flexible. It's expendable. I have found favor with God. All of it is second. Everything changes for Mary. I mean, she's transformed on the inside even more than her public life is about to change. That's hard to see here, but you have to look. You have to see how that precedes all that follows. That's what belief looks like, friends. God gives faith. God fills her with faith to make what is essentially a belief statement in verse 38. And it comes to her as a gift. It changes her. The power is outside of her. She could not have done this on her own. She never would have done this on her own. God gives it to her as a gift. The gift of believing and trusting this God who can do, as it says, the impossible. So Mary's response shows how God fills her through faith. Mary is filled with faith. But third and last, let's see how Mary is blessed. So we just saw how Mary's response shows how God fills her. Next, and in this last portion of the text where Mary visits Elizabeth, Mary's faith, her belief, leads her to action. So look with me at verses 39 through 45. Uh, Mary rose with haste. She, it's quick. 
I know I'm treading on thin ice here, but I want to just get this out of the way. Mary just found out that a child is conceived in her womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've never been pregnant. I don't expect to be pregnant at any point. And let me be the first to say I know the least about it. I'm not any kind of expert. And I have a deep admiration for those who have had that experience. Christina, I hope you're hearing me, right? I mean it. I want to make sure everyone hears that. Mary jumped up and moved quickly. Her belief led to immediate action. She knew she better get on, right? I better make this happen quickly. In those days, she wasn't going to wait. You're going to do a hill country walk while pregnant. You better do it before your feet swell and your back hurts and that child begins crippling you later in pregnancy. And she knows that, right? I like how Luke mentions it's in the hill country too. Like, it just couldn't have been flat. You know, could I just find a flat place to do this walk? No. Has to be through the hill country. All I got are these broken down sandals. Um, One of my favorite stories of being around you know friends in this moment of having a child was when Christina and I, I think Jack and Jack was with us, but we got to be the first visitors to friends of ours who had just had their first child. And if you've ever had that experience, you know how like precious and sentimental and sweet that is and how privileged you feel to be in the room visiting someone who's just had a baby, um, who's just gone through a lot of the things we talked about. Um, but just one part of that I want to share with you. Right as we entered the room, uh, these Friends of ours, clearly there was a little bit of tension in the room. And usually you, you come in and you're, you'd be expect, you're, you're expect to be just embraced by the love that's in the air when the child is born, right? Just so the cuteness of the baby and the parents' faces and they're like, oh, it's our baby, right? We go in and there is definitely tension in the room. So after a minute, we're like, what's, right, what's going on? Just, like, will you just tell us something just happened maybe? And um, our friend, the mother, looks at him and she's like, yeah, tell them. Tell them what just happened. And so reluctantly, he looks at us, doesn't want to say it, but he knows he has to. And he, lo- he looks at us and he just says, I said that my feet hurt. I said that right after she had given birth to their, their daughter, he looks at her and he says, you know, my feet are really hurting about now, right? It was great. I'll never forget that. It's just so good. So here, back to our story. When Mary greets Elizabeth, when she gets to Elizabeth and Zachariah's house, we're left to imagine the kind of greeting she gives Elizabeth. But after she does that, quickly, a chain reaction happens. Elizabeth hears Mary. The baby in her womb leaps, which is not always comfortable, men. Maybe never comfortable. And she's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then she screams. (laughs) She screams. For those of you with children or who are pregnant, you know, maybe it's just a typical day. I don't know. Let me tell you how relatable the Gospels are to us here, though. The word for cry is what the Israelites used while making bricks and being oppressed and tortured in Egypt. (laughs) Sounds like maybe that's a fair, you know, that's a right comparison there. The word for cry is also used when people are having a shouting match, like they're just screaming at each other, trying to one-up each other with their volume. I'd say that checks out, too. (laughs) But I'd say that what comes out of Elizabeth's mouth, her words are not typical of most women carrying a baby, and I do not blame them. (laughs) Elizabeth calls Mary blessed three times here and wonders how she's fortunate enough to get a visit from the mother of her Lord, the Roman title for God. This is Elizabeth, remember, who was barren for her whole adult life and who's now pregnant by a miraculous act of God accompanied by signs. And you know what's surprising? What is so surprising here is that there is no hint of jealousy in Elizabeth's mouth. No hint, not even an ounce. 
Instead, what does she say? Mary, you're blessed. (laughs) You're blessed. I want you to think back one more time to what Mary's life is like in this moment. She's had a minute in that hill country walk for things to settle in. Her future looks absolutely bleak, right? And yet she's transformed. She believes God. But her circumstances are devastating. This isn't necessarily a happy visit, at least not in every way. Her immediate future looks bleak. And Elizabeth, speaking in the power of the Holy Spirit here, calls her blessed. How can that be? I think the key to understanding that, understanding that question and understanding what this means for us is in that one little word called blessed, which is where we'll kind of tie things up at the end. We said that Elizabeth calls Mary blessed three times. Well, she actually uses two different words here for blessed. The first two times, it's a very common word. It means something like, I speak well of you or speak well to you. But the last time, in verse 45, she points back to Mary's faith statement when she says that she is a servant of the Lord. God, may your words, or angel of God, the words of God that have come to me, may your words be true. And here Elizabeth uses the word for blessed that the child Mary carries, Jesus, will use in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. It's another word for blessed. It could also mean happy. And to quote Jesus, to listen to his words in Matthew 5, this is what they are. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Mary believes, and she is blessed. And she doesn't miss this point, and neither should we. Right? Elizabeth screams it at her. It's a particular kind of blessedness, though. Elizabeth is saying that Mary is blessed because she trusts God, and that he will do what he said. He'll fulfill the promises he's made, even though it means a kind of social death for Mary. Um, Another second century uh, church father, Polycarp, as he is being carried to his death, and he's on the floor of the Colosseum or some gladiatorial combat zone, and about to be put to death for his Christian faith, and asked to renounce his faith, he simply responds with, with blessedness, his blessedness. How could I, how could I give up? God, Christ, who I've worshipped all these years for, I think, 80-something years. How could I give him up now? In the face of murder, he's about to die. He considers himself blessed. I think that's the question that we're left with. That's the question for you and for me, brothers and sisters. Does belief really lead to blessedness? Is that what Christianity, is that what the Christian life, the Christian experience is like for us? I feel like it causes me a lot of things. Blessedness is not usually the first thing, and it doesn't quickly come to mind, right? It causes me guilt. My belief causes me guilt when I struggle to be generous instead of greedy. It causes me regret. Maybe for some of you who are older, when you consider the end of your life and your legacy and realize there may be no buildings in your name or scholarships named after you or the keys to the city in your office, is that blessedness a belief of being a Christ follower, of a life lived in relative obscurity? I know belief causes me sorrow when I'm oppressed or persecuted in any way. It causes me pain. It causes me shame when I refuse to put others above my own well-being and reputation, when I put myself ahead of others. So do you really think, do you really live like one who will be blessed because of your belief? Do you live like one of whom Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are oppressed, right? Blessed are are the meek, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because your belief, the kind of blessing that the upside-down kingdom of God happiness that Jesus promises there in the Sermon on the Mount, it will disadvantage you. It will disadvantage you to listen to and believe the weak, the vulnerable, and the powerless in society, like Elizabeth did here. It's so interesting, is it, that all of this rests upon Elizabeth believing um, the truth, as Mary tells her, of her own sexual history, her sexual life. It will be difficult. It will be risky. And like Mary, it will feel like losing. It might make you lose friends or co-workers. It might make you feel just downright crazy. But that's the call of Jesus. That's actually faith. Jesus appeared as one who was weak, vulnerable, who was powerless in society. And the belief that Elizabeth praised Mary for, it's a belief in a powerful God working through Jesus, who displays weakness over strength, who takes injustice instead of vindicating himself by his own righteousness. And also, Jesus who commends those as blessed because of their belief, even when they face various trials of various kinds. So how does Mary's belief, if you believe, how does your belief point to Jesus and this kingdom? In other words, how will belief this Christmas in the Christ mean your happiness, your blessing in the kingdom of God? How will God fill your emptiness? How will he transform you into someone who is blessed and happy in a way that the world cannot take? The world can't even critique it, though they may try. How does that happen for Mary? How will that happen for you? I think it's, it's sort of simple. She believed. Right? Mary believes. She gives up her life. She gives up her body. Even her plans for her, her life in the immediate future. Her own self-rule. For God's promises in Jesus, here's the point. Mary believes God's word, but the reason she is blessed, it is not her own credentials. Right? It never was. It's not for you. It is not by our credentials that we are blessed. Right? God gives the gift of faith. It is God's work. It is God making those believe in Jesus that he then will call them blessed. It's belonging to his body. Belonging to this body for many of us. Because your own body is not your own anymore. You belong to another. And that's good news, friends. That is good news. If your body is your own, that means a return to captivity. That means poverty that doesn't end. That means blindness, spiritual blindness at least, all over again. That means loss of liberty, because Jesus is the only one who truly liberates. That means no happiness through meekness. If you feel small, only Jesus can make you eternally happy there. It means that oppression will reign. If not for Jesus blessing his people, then oppression reigns, right? He's the only one who has the power to say and the power to carry it out. I will put an end to your oppression, and even now I will bless you in it. If you have faith, then you are a part of Christ's body and you share in his blessings. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we offer this time to you, even in our own feeble attempts at understanding how it could be that um, someone in Mary's place could be blessed. We wanted the same things for ourselves, um, sometimes with great depth and sometimes with honest um, 
shallowness. How will, how will you bless me today, God? How will in the next few weeks we know the blessings that are ours in Christ because you've promised them? Pray that you would give us, um, you would strengthen our faith to be more like that of Mary. Um, that we would have faith that says, God, fulfill your promises in me, whatever it means for my life. Because King Jesus, the one who reigns and who loves us, is on his throne. And he is the one who promises blessing to those who are weak, to those who are vulnerable, to those who need it. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.